Great to see you all. Short Church, as always, um, pleasure to see you all out. Friends, guests, visitors in from out of town. Great to see you as well. Hope you feel at home and welcome. Look forward to getting to know you over the coming weeks and Lord willing, months. We're starting a new series this morning on 1 John, which I am excited about. So go ahead, grab your Bibles or turn on your apps or literally just Google the number one and the word John behind and it will come up. But before we go there, just um, wanted to drop in um, everybody's ear here a reminder that we have Alpha starting. Alpha's beginning October 9th. If you were part of our last Alpha, really powerful time. Um, We got to intersect and have great conversations with friends, neighbors, um, people from the community. This is a great place um, if you're kind of skirting the edges, checking Christianity out, wondering what the heck. um, This is the place to come. What Alpha is, is we we start by sharing a meal together, completely free of charge. I'm ordering it, so it's going to be some delicious takeout from somewhere in town. Um, No one, yeah, it's going to be good. Uh, It was good last time. Then what we do is we watch kind of an interactive video. We'll talk through some of life's bigger questions. It's not really preachy. It's a place to come and, and share ideas. We're looking for people from different faith backgrounds, ethnicities, cultures, and trust that God is going to provide them. Trust that God's put them around your house, in your workplaces. So on your way out, please grab a card today and in, just pray for a moment. Who could I invite? If, 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 if you're the one who's skirting the edges and wondering, please feel invited, but go to our website, sign up soon. Uh, it's going to be a great time. Um, just wanted to plug that in your ear. Yeah, we're going into 1 John. I'm excited about it. As I've said, if you're wondering um, where John is, go to the very last book in your Bible. Flip to the left a little bit. You're going to pass Jude, 3 John, 2 John. Then you'll come to 1 John. 1 John, as the letter suggests, is written by a man named John. Um, If you've read the Gospels at all, all of them include this. Um, Jesus initially finds... Um, Simon and his brother Andrew, and he calls them, those are his first disciples, but then he comes across these two men, James and Jonathan. They're mending their fishing nets. Jesus calls them. They turn and decide to follow him. Throughout the scripture, these guys get referred to as the sons of thunder, James and Jonathan. What an awesome title. Sons of Thunder. It's like a WCW tag team. You can just like cue the intro music. They sound like dudes. They sound really neat. I don't know why they're called Sons of Thunder. Maybe they're boisterous fishermen. Maybe, I don't know, maybe they like to scrap a little. Maybe they just got really loud voices. But Sons of Thunder is what these two guys get referred to in Scripture. Individually, though, John on his own gets a bit of a different title often in the Scripture. He's called the disciple that Jesus loved. He was part of um, Jesus' inner crew of three He got to witness a lot of the really unique moments in Jesus' life, like the transfiguration. We see in the scripture, um, him just really close to Jesus. I read one story, or you've probably read it too, him him leaning back, reclining, and resting his head on Jesus. Um, That might sound weird in our culture. We don't really do things like that. But in an Eastern culture, this was a sign of friendship and affection. I was in... uh, Tanzania and Zanzibar this summer, and in an Eastern context, when people feel like they're your friend, um, there at least, they'll just walk up, men will walk up and grab your hand. And so I found myself walking down the street holding hands with men a lot, which is weird to me. Um, so if it seems weird that Jesus is 
uh, having John rest his head on his stomach, on his chest. It's just a sign of affection in this culture. And what it's saying is that these two guys are close. But when all the other disciples had deserted Jesus, when, when Peter denied him, it was John who actually stuck by him. John, we see him at the foot of the cross as Jesus is being murdered. He's right there. He stuck through. He didn't deny him. And Jesus actually looks down and says to John, behold your mother. Bunch of different opinions on why um, he, he entrusts the care of his mother. Perhaps Joseph, her husband, had died at this point. Others think James was, or John was very rich. I mean, they had a fleet of fishing boats. He had a house in Jerusalem. He had connections with some of the political and religious elite. The point is, is that James and John, or <laughs> Jesus and John are very close. They're very close. After Jesus died, um, if, you, if you're familiar with the, the history or if you've read the book of Acts, the disciples, um, they hang out in Jerusalem for a while, but then some persecution forces them to scatter. And this is where the story of John gets really crazy. John ends up going north to a place called Ephesus. This is modern-day Turkey. Um, the disciples, they're all scattered. Crazy things are happening. Christianity spreading like wildfire in the midst of this persecution. History, um, the, the historians comment and, and, and call the apostles those who turned the world upside down because everything's changing so quickly at this time. John ends up in Ephesus. They're scattering around, but then the authorities decide we need to put this Christianity thing to bed. We need to get rid of it. They start to drag disciples and followers of Jesus into um, Colosseums, killing them, making them fight lions, torturing them, really for spectacle. And what we know is that at some point, John gets dragged into one of these death for entertainment complexes. And I'm not making this up. Okay, they take John and they put him in a giant pot of boiling oil. They tried to boil him to death. And hear this. Rather than screams of agony... He proclaims the gospel, and he's removed unharmed. He's removed unharmed from the oil. Thousands of people in the arena on the spot convert to Christianity, and so they, they're like, we can't kill this guy. So what they do is they take him to the island of Patmos. Patmos, this is in, um, it's a remote island. They trying to shut him up, prevent the gospel from going out anymore. They don't think they can kill him, so they take him there. This is where John, he writes his apocalyptic vision letter to the, the seven churches in Asia, Revelation. We worked through that a couple years ago. He's there for a period of time, and then what we learn is um, at some point in the future, he's released from Patmos. He's brought back to Ephesus. He's brought back to Ephesus, and it's after writing the book of Revelation that he sits down and he pens his gospel, the gospel of John. Um, the, I've already referred to it. Um, it's really good. If you've never read any of the gospels, I would commend to you the gospel of John. You owe it to history. You owe it to yourself to read at least one gospel. You can sit down and read this thing in two hours, or this is wonderful. You can get the ESV app, and at the bottom, there's a button that will read it to you. So you can lay on your back and do nothing. Go sit, well, we're not going to have sun anymore. You can go sit in the rain and listen to it. <coughs> now, most, most would date this Gospel of John to have been written around the 75 to, or 70 to 85 AD mark. So about 50 years after Jesus died, 
this gospel gets written and it's circulated throughout kind of the, the known world at the time. But then something happens. Kind of in this conflux of different cultures, some different philosophies and beliefs, they begin to seep in. People begin to misinterpret some of the things John has been saying, and it troubles him. And so later on in his life, John's an old man by this point. He writes 1 John. 1 John. It's a letter. And, and really, we can think of it this way. It's an, it's a, an appendix for the gospel of John. In light of some of the misunderstandings that have been going out about John, he writes this letter and he sends it out, historians would argue, to all the places where the gospel has gone before in order to bring clarity to it. And then they would say the first 18 verses of John's gospel were added to the future copies that were sent out. And what we're going to notice this morning as we look at John 1, 1 to 4, 1 John 1, 1 to 4, is that it's very similar to the opening of John. And this is why, is because John's Clarified, and he's brought clarity back because he knows which misunderstandings are happening. He's saying, hey, I want to double down and I want to explain so that there's no more misinformation. I want to bring clarity. I want to touch back on a few things so it's very clear. And so as we read this, as we go through this as a church for the next 10 weeks, 10 weeks right up to Christmas, you believe that? Christmas is coming. Eggnog lattes are coming. Hold on. As we go through this, could I encourage you to be reading John's gospel as we read 1 John? They're going to lend clarity to each other. It's going to make sense. And as you do, can I encourage you to, with a pencil, it's okay to do this, circle in your Bible three words. These are the three themes that are going to come up in John, um, John's writings over and over and over, and especially so in 1 John. Circle the word love. Circle the word no. Circle the word fellowship. These are the themes John's going to double back on over and over and over again. What you'll notice, Paul, Paul's a very linear, structured writer. John's a very circular guy. His logic super circular. He's just going to keep doubling back and doubling back and doubling back. And so take, take some time. Read those on your own. Um, it, will, it will help. I want to open the series by saying this. The truth John is going to present the content of First John, his letter, is not just for the church 2,000 years ago. It's for today. It's for you. There's truth here for us to mine. And my prayer is that this series would challenge, it would shake up, it would transform our thinking. And ultimately, it would enliven our experience in relationship to Christ. That's what I've been praying for myself. That's what I've been praying for us as a congregation. I want it to enliven our experience with Christ. I, my prayer is that we'd come, we'd come to be more satisfied and delighted in God, and that the depths of our relationships with one another and with God would come alive in ways that they never have before. That's my prayer. Would you go ahead, grab your Bibles, open up to 1 John. 1 John, we're going to read the first four verses. Um, and the structure, if you're a note taker, kind of how I'm going to come at this this morning is these three things. John's proclamation, John's experience, and John's invitation. This is how we're going to move through this. We're going to look at John's proclamation of the word of life, John's experience of the eternal life, and John's invitation to joy. 1 John 
chapter one, verse one, let's go. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we've seen with our eyes, which we've looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest and we have seen it and testified to it and proclaimed to you the eternal life, which was with the father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard we proclaim also to you so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed our fellowship is with the father and with his son, Jesus Christ. And we're writing these things so that our joy could be complete. Now, clearly this is dense writing. Every word's quite pregnant with meaning here. This isn't light, uh, light reading. So we can't take too much time. Well, we can take too much. Am I probably going to almost take too much time here? But we can't go too fast because there's some goodness here. There's lots that we need to see. Take a look at this opening phrase with me. That which was from the beginning. I want us to ask the question, what's the that that he's referring to here? What's the that? It's right at the end of verse one. That which was from the beginning, which we've heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and touched with our hands concerning the word of life. John's proclaiming the word of life. And now depending on your translation, this might be capitalized. The word of life might, the W might be capitalized. And that's because the word of life that he's referring to is not the gospel message as we might think. In the original language here, um, there's, I won't get too nerdy on you. What it is, is it's actually referring to a person. If John had only said the word that we heard, we might be able to think it's the gospel message. But he's saying the word of life is something that they saw with their eyes. And then it says it's something we looked upon, which is really a way of saying that we examined, we scrutinized, and we touched it with our hands. You can't do that to words. You can do that to a person. The word of life that John is referring to isn't an abstract idea. It's a being, and his name is Jesus. Now, John's gospel opens very similarly, and I want, I just, I want to compare and contrast a little. Um, so if you would, hang a left in your Bibles. We're going to go to the gospel of John. I will bounce back and forth a little bit, so if you want to keep your thumb there, that might help you. John 1.1 opens the same way. It says, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. But why, so, I mean, John's saying the same thing in, in his gospel, in his letter. Why is he calling Jesus the word? Why does he call him the word? Not the life, not the light, not the way, not not anything else. Lots of other really great names he could have given Jesus. Why the word? The culture that John lived in, this meant a lot. To the culture he was in, they would have been grabbing a lot out of this. Um, John's opening sentence has in it two ideas, two words that would have spoken volumes to both the Greek and the Jewish um, ears that would have received this letter. The first thing they would have noticed is the word that John uses for beginning. The word that John uses from be for beginning is the Greek word arche. Forgive my nerdiness for a second. Arche 
is the word in the Greek translation of the Old Testament used in Genesis 1-1 when it says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So what they would, would have kind of pricked their ears was they would have went, hey, he's using the same word for the very beginning. So the beginning point that John's referring to is not like 20 years prior. It's from all eternity. It's from all eternity. And what they would have picked up on is that he's saying the, the word, which is a person, was from the arche, the beginning, with God, from the beginning when God created, which is a big statement to say about a person. Now, catch this, though. It says he was from the beginning. Not he is from the beginning or he began at the beginning. He used the word he already was is what it's saying in the original language. He was at the beginning. What he's saying, Jesus isn't just a man. He's an eternal being. There's something else that they would have noticed that would have stood out to them. The specific word that John uses for word is the word... That's confusing. I don't know how to say that different though. The word that John uses for the word is the word logos. Logos. So word in Greek is logos. Now logos in the Greek world of philosophy and religion, it's the title given to the creative force behind the universe, the ordering creative mind that of everything that's seen and unseen, that's the logos. Today, I mean, the Greeks acknowledged an order, a, a reason, um, some sort of methodology behind the universe. Much like today, many scientists are walking away from a pure naturalistic evolutionary um, approach to science because what they're seeing is such an order within the universe that they're going, there's some sort of a creative mind behind this. They're going intelligent design or Elon Musk after smoking up on Joe Rogan, he, he He's gone, he's gone full simulation theory. He, he thinks that we're in a video game, that we're actually existing within some virtual reality created by somebody on a computer. What they're doing is they're saying, we acknowledge there's an order. This isn't just some chaotic chance happenstance thing. There's something there, but we don't want to acknowledge it as a God. There's something there though. What John is saying is that this logos, this creative source, this intelligent designer, this creative mind, that person is Jesus. That's what they would have been picking up on. In the beginning, oh, pardon, yeah, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. So is he made? No. Jesus is not a made being. Um, I was a Jehovah's Witness as a kid. They believe that um, Jesus is a made being, that God made him. Mormons would say the same thing. The problem is the scripture. It says nothing that was made was made outside of him. So he's eternal. Again, this is just what John's saying. Now, there's many, there's many, many, many interpretations on who Jesus was. The further away um, from Jesus' actual life we get, the more interesting they get, if you've ever watched the History Channel. It's quite amusing. I was in, I was in India. Uh, I've got a book on my shelf at home. It says, Jesus was a Native American. 
I don't know. I don't know if he was a Native American. I was in India last summer um, up in the Himalayas, and I found a book that claims Jesus actually came to northern India and started an ashram. It's interesting where we get the further away from Jesus' life we get. Some will say he's a great teacher, a very moral man. He was a prophet or an underprivileged working-class victim of political and religious persecution. There's lots and lots and lots of opinions about who he was, but what is undeniable is that he existed. You can't shake that fact. Jesus existed. All of history has been shaped around this man. A calendar that we exist in. I know my age because I was born in 1983 and today it's 2018, therefore I'm 35. Based off of a calendar built around Jesus' life. We can't deny him. He existed. This penniless preacher from Nazareth has had more impact on culture, ethics, law, the arts. Every human facet has been affected more by Jesus than anyone before or after. There's many people who have many opinions on Jesus, but catch this. Not too many who have touched him. Not too many who have held on to him like John has. And what we need to know is that the first century friends and followers of Jesus all agreed on this one thing. In fact, they all gave their lives for this one thing. Refusing to deny the fact that Jesus was God had them killed because they claimed Jesus was God. He was, he is, and he always has been God. Flip back to 1 John with me. It says, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we've looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest and we have seen it and testified to it and proclaimed to you the eternal life, which was with the father and was made manifest to us. That's what we have seen and heard. We proclaim to you also. That which we have seen. They saw it. In, uh, in 2 Peter 1.16, we read this. It says, We did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of Jesus, but we were eyewitnesses to his majesty. In John 14.9, Jesus himself said, He that has seen me has seen the Father. John is saying, Jesus is God in flesh. He's God incarnate. The word was more than an idea. It had become flesh. That should baffle us a little. That should baffle us quite a lot. I've been trying to really just meditate and think on that this week, and it's perplexing. John 1, verse 14, we read, The word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Jesus was fully God, yet fully man. And this idea of the divine logos becoming flesh, it would have blown their Middle Eastern minds. To the Greeks, the divine logos, it was just a conceptual idea. So it becoming a physical form, it would have been earth-shattering. To the Jews, the all-powerful God of the universe condescending to human form to actually become part of his creation, 
that would have been provocative. If we try to meditate and, th- and just really fathom that, it's equally perplexing to us. But this is what John is proclaiming. The eternal God manifested himself. The God of the world stepped into it. The source of everything became part of it. Yeah, if you want to hurt your brain, spend a little time thinking about that. But the question should then become for us, why did he come? Why did he come? Why would God come? Why did he come down and step into creation? Why does John consider this so vital? Why double back on this years later and make this your opening statement? And there's three things the incarnation communicates to us. Three things that I, I want us all to hear. One, we're not alone. We're not alone. There's no God then you are, and, and you and I are nothing more than stardust colliding with stardust, then there exists no purpose for which you were created. There's nothing your life's about. You have no more worth or purpose or value than tree moss. There's nothing inside of you worth expressing. You're just chemical fizz. The incarnation of God into human form and into human history lets us know that we're more than the great, 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 great grandbabies of bluefin tuna. It lifts us from the absolute depressingness of a world without God. And as you examine it, there's really no hope in a world like that. There's nothing to just or to, to found morality or law or worth or value, all the things we value. There's no way to ground an appreciation of the arts. We, we live like there's a God, but we deny him constantly. The incarnation tells us that there is a God. And our story then is no longer that you happened by accident, but that God made you on purpose. Second thing the incarnation communicates to us is that God cares. He's not the abstract notion of the logos within Greek philosophy. He's not the unknowable force of intelligent design. He's not the nerdy game designer behind modern simulation theories. He's the God who's over creation, but also engaged in it. John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world that he sent his son. There's not only a God who made you, he cares. God cares so much that he condescended into human form in order to be able to rescue it. He has compassion. He sympathizes. Hebrews 4.15, it says, we don't have a high priest who's unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way just as we are, yet is without sin. He's not some far off distant God. He's imminently close. He's intimately involved in his creation because he's a God that's revealed himself, that's taken on human form and has involved himself in his creation. And because he's done this, we can know with certainty that we're not to live our lives out alone. There's a God who has demonstrated that he wants to engage with us. He came in human form because he came to give us something. What, you ask? Thank you for asking. Um, Read with me, 1 John 2. The life, 
was made manifest and we have seen it and testified to it and proclaimed to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest to us, that which we have seen and heard, we proclaim to you also. What did he come to give? Life. Fellowship with himself. Well, I already have life. No, you don't. Not like this. Not like this. John's proclaiming the word of life. But This is our second point. Now John's going to talk about his experience of eternal life. In our text, verse Two, it talks about the life. This is the word for life here is the Greek word zoa. Zoa. Now, there's several other words for life that he could have used. I think there's four other words for life. Zoa communicates something very specifically, though. He used it intentionally. So let's take a look at it for just a second. Zoa, it refers to life in the absolute sense. It refers to life as God has it. it. It's the kind of life that Jesus and God have within themselves. The abundant, the abounding, the ever, ever flowing life. And it's littered, actually, it's, it's, it's life in its most flourishing form. John, he uses this word like crazy three times in the first four verses of 1 John. But he uses it... Um, I'm, over and over and over throughout the rest of his writing as well. Let me put a couple up on the screen for you to, to take a look at. John 1, 4, it says, In him was life, Zoa. In him was Zoa, and the Zoa was the light of men. John 5, 24, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my words and believes him who sent me has eternal Zoa. He does not come into judgment, but he's passed from death to life. Third, John 10, 10, I have come that they would have life and have it more abundantly. I've come that they would have Zoa. Life abundant. John loves this word. 32 times it shows up in his gospel. Another 26 times in his other letters. Combined, he uses it more than the other authors all put together. He loves this word because there's something he wants us to see. He wants us to see the gift that God came to give us. Zoa, life abundant. In places, or sorry, pardon me, in place of lives that lack meaning, worth, and purpose, where our life and our vitality only dissipate, leak out of the seams, there exists life that teems, that abounds, that ever flows with meaning, worth, and purpose. In place of naturalism's claim that our life is nothing more than chemical fizzle, that when you die, that's the end, and Jesus comes and he offers life that is from him, for him, and filled by him. The, Christ, or the, the, the life that Christ offers, this Zoa, frees us from looking within ourselves, trying to conjure up meaning, and invites us to hold ourselves up to the life that ever flows that will fill into us and never cease filling us and will continually flow out of us and spill into others as well. That's the life he came. That's the life he came to gift to us. <coughs> John says that he saw this. He scrutinized this. He looked upon it. He touched it and he experienced it. And then it says this, verse 3, that which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you so that you too may have fellowship with us. 
and indeed our fellowships with the Father. Here's what he's saying. That which the apostles saw and held and touched is available for us to taste. That which he's testifying to now exists for us. We're free to enter into that. Revelation um, 3.20, it says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. John 6.35, Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. It's that life abundant, Zoa. The way to participate in eternal life is only through Jesus, and this makes sense because no other religion has a God that descended and took on human form and entered into his creation in order to rescue it. Now, many have claimed to find paths to heaven um, and, and, and given prescriptions for meditation and stretching and good works and this and that, but none of those guys died and came back from death. Jesus took on human flesh in order to be a suitable substitute for us, in order to pay the penalty that we had deserved. He died the death we should have. He gifted us the reward that was only his to give. He's killed on our behalf, then rose from the dead, proving that he, he was who he said he was. He is who the disciples are saying he is, and that he does have the kind of life that he came to give us. Zoa. John 14, 6 says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Christianity makes an exclusive claim on a path to heaven because Jesus exclusively is the only God who came down and made a way and then demonstrated to us that it works. He came down to gift us this life, this Zoa, this abundant joy that overflows. And the question for all of us this morning is, have we tasted that? Have we tasted it? Let me put it this way. Are you tasting it? Have you tasted it this week? For many in the room, I suspect that the, our knowledge of the Father and the Son and the, of the Holy Spirit is purely academic. The idea of knowing in an intimate sense is a future idea, something that we've put off for much, much later. But there's, a, there's knowing, and then there's knowing. There's a real experiential relationship with God that exists for followers of him that I suspect many of us fail to engage in. The life abundant that Christ came to gift to us has been relegated to the realm of ethereal, future, far off, distant, and it really hasn't, it hasn't manifested in front of us in our lives. But take a look, take a look up on the screen with me. I think we have it there, Matthew. No, okay. Listen, <laughs> Matthew 7, 21 to 23. Jesus said, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who's in heaven. 
On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. You've been doing all these things for me, but I don't know you. You don't know me. You know about me. You're doing works. You're preaching. You're teaching. You're living your lives with some knowledge, but you don't know me. Do you know God? Do you know Jesus? Do you know the Holy Spirit? Scripture says the Holy Spirit lives within you. The Holy Spirit lives in us. Do we know him? Romans 8.14 says, all who are sons of God are led by the Spirit of God. Do we know him? Do we hear his voice? Do we listen? Throughout this letter, John's just going to keep coming back to this question. He's going to keep getting here. He's going to keep doubling down on this theme because he believes that knowing and walking with God is of utmost importance. Remember I said, circle the word fellowship in your Bibles. And this is important, not just to those who wouldn't call themselves Christians, but to those who would. Do we know God? John 17, 3 says, this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God in Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Eternal life is knowing. That's what John 17, 3 says. Now, I said at the beginning, um, my prayer for this series and for us as a church is that over the coming 10 weeks, we would be compelled into deeper depths of relationship with God, but also one another. That our experience of joy would come alive in ways we've never experienced before, because I believe there's a depth of relationship available to us that we've yet to step into. But how, how do we actually go about tasting this? How do we actually come to know Jesus? Oh man, that's where we're going to go. That's what the series is going to bring up. There's so many places I want to go right now, but for the sake of time, I can't. Luckily for me uh, is that uh, our text does present a little hint. It gives us a little glimpse of where we're going forward. And so this is our third point, is John's invitation to joy. Again, 1 John, verse 3. That which we have seen and heard we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that... Our joy, your translation might say your joy, may be complete. And I would say that word can be used interchangeably. It can mean yours and ours, and I'll explain that in a second. There's something I want us to notice here, though. Um, John links together fellowship with God with fellowship with one another. He said, you will have fellowship with us and our fellowships with God, so you have fellowship with God through having fellowship with us. It's a little confusing. Um, I got to use a third Greek word this morning. We don't normally bust out so many. This is juicy, though. It's the Greek word for fellowship is koinonia. Koinonia means communion or partaking or participation in something. So fellowship's not like chilling. It's partaking. It's, it's, we got to think of fellowship correctly. Communing partaking, participation. And John says his desire is that others would, would participate in kononia, in fellowship with them, just as they, and, and through that, they'll also 
come to God. Does this make any sense at all? Somewhat, let me put a diagram up just so that we're clear. You'll see on the screen here, um, a triangle at the top, God, the bottom left corner, us, the bottom right corner, others. This is meant to illustrate that as we move into relationship and canonia with God, it's going to pull us into relationship with others. It directs us that way. They can't be divorced. They operate together. What John is saying is that canonia with the Father comes through canonia with one another, and we can't help but be drawn together as we move towards God. Canonia can't be lived out in social isolation, and there's three reasons. One, we're created as image bearers of God. And that God exists in relationship with two others. God is three in one. We're to be reflections of a God who exists in community. So the the idea, if you're tracking with me, that a single person could fully reflect a God that is three, it's almost blasphemous, isn't it? It's almost blasphemous. It's something that we need to do in community. Canonia can't be walked out in social isolation because of who we're meant to reflect. The second thing, it's only within the context of relationships that love can exist. It's only within the context of relationships that love can exist. We can't have love as an individual unit. It expresses itself out into others. Love requires more than one person. Thirdly, or actually one verse, John 13, 35, Jesus says, by this all people will know that you're my disciples. Do you love one another? third reason canonia can't be lived out in social isolation we cannot fully enjoy God without community let me put this differently the love of God consummates in community the love of God consummates or it explodes in community let me explain that when you go on a vacation um, when you go on a vacation and you come home um, what's the first thing you do? You look, you look for some people to tell about the amazing time you had, um, the food you ate, the beaches you saw, the amazing mountain you climbed, the dolphins you swam with, um, and, and you go straight to putting a photo album up on Facebook. And some of that's because we're just proud. Some of that is because we want to share that experience with people. Why, why is it that you want to tell people about your favorite restaurant? My favorite restaurant of Vancouver, um, Granville and 14th, Weesey, so good. Cajun Creole, you're welcome. So good. Why is it that every Sunday morning Josh Mack shows up with a new corny joke? Why is it that Ernest Ice Cream has four locations? Because we can't help but talk about the things we love and enjoy, right? We've got to talk about them. We've got to share. Because our joy actually isn't complete until we do. We actually get more joy from sharing it. There's something in the act of sharing that makes it even better. If you're, if you're married or in a relationship, you remember back to when you first fell in love and um, you were just starting to, to realize, man, I really like this person. You couldn't help but tell other people about your sweetheart. You realize that you loved 
this other person, but there was something that made it come alive when you finally said it, wasn't there? It's because love consummates in relationship. Kanonia consummates in relationship. Jonathan Edwards, my favorite, favorite writer is up on the screen. He said this, I think we delight to praise what we enjoy because the praise not merely expresses but completes the enjoyment. It's its appointed consummation. That's where I stole the language from. We need community in order for joy to be complete. As we taste the goodness of God, as we partake in the eternal life that God has set aside for us and purchased for us, that relationship with God, that kanonia, that feasting on God's word, that, that meditating, that silence and solitude, that time alone in the word and with the spirit, it comes alive and it explodes out into community. God came to give us Zoa, life that teems and spills out and overflows because as it overflows out of us, it gives us joy, but it's also going to give other people joy as well. It's where our knowing God comes alive is within the context of community. This is why we come together on Sunday mornings. This is why we sit under God's word and instruction. This is why we praise together. This is why we get together in community groups because this is where we come to know God. This is where our knowing God comes alive. This is where our joy is made complete. This is where others' joys are made complete. Community is the place where we share the riches of our experiences of God. And if you're not in community, I would urge you, you're made for it. You're robbing yourself, but you're also robbing others. Get in community for the sake of your joy. And also be on the lookout and, and be inviting other people into community. I love how he says this, and we're writing these things so that our joy may be complete. There's no greater joy than seeing somebody you love enter into a life of meaning and purpose and worth and value and to taste that Zoa for the first time. Again, we have an alpha coming up. God's put people around you who don't yet know him who haven't tasted this and are meant for this. We need to be praying. We need to be on the lookout because there's people who are lacking that and there's joy for us in doing it. I'm going to close there um, and I'm going to invite us just as a congregation to respond in a few ways. The band's going to come forward and um, we'll sing. First, first though, I just want to explain communion here. We have, we'll have a couple on either side with bread and wine. This is us celebrating and remembering the fact that Jesus did become flesh. We come forward, we take the bread, we dip it in the wine, which symbolizes and represents and, and forces our mind back to the fact that Jesus came down in human form. And just as the wine is absorbed into the bread, Jesus absorbed the wrath of God on our behalf. And we take it and we celebrate because we believe that he has purchased us eternal Zoa, eternal life, life that we don't need to work for to earn. We need to enjoy it. And so it's just a, a touch point every week where we come back and we remind ourselves. 
If you're not yet a believer, don't come forward and take that this morning. Stay right in your seats. Take Jesus and accept Zoa. Secondly, we're going to worship. We're going to overflow it as we take this communion and reflect on what we've been given. We're going to overflow into worship together. And then um, we'll have a prayer couple in the corner um, over here. Um, They would love to pray for whatever is on your heart. If there's something burdening you as well, James and Dale, um, our lead pastor and elder are going to be in the corner and um, behind the prayer couple. They would love to pray for you. If there's something heavy on your heart, if there's a, whatever it is, something you're like a spiritual malady, if there's a physical affliction, if you're sick, if you need healing, um, James 5, it says, the effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. And we believe that we have a God who has entered into human history and still loves to. And I believe that God would love to meet with you in prayer, maybe even in the form of healing this morning. And so that's available to you in the corner as well. Let me close us in a word of prayer. Father, I just I thank you. Thank you for your word. Thank you for what you accomplished on our behalf, Jesus. Thank you for entering into human history, revealing to us that there is a purpose to our lives, that you do care. And thank you for coming and doing what we couldn't do. Thank you for coming and not just letting us know you're there, but coming with a gift yourself. The life that you have in you can now be in us. I want to be a deeper partaker of that. And I pray as a body, just that you would remind us and refresh us and give us a taste more of that this week. I pray our experience of joy would come alive. I pray that we would be brought closer together as a community. And as others look in, they would say, man, I know there's a God because of how they love each other. Pray that you be made much of and Holy Spirit, I pray you be inhabiting the praises of your people this morning. And I pray it in the name of Jesus. Amen.